The sermon is called This Very Day. Do you ever feel like um, <clears throat> your life is perched on the edge? Like you're on the edge of something. And that something could either be very good, but also kind of bad. You ever had that experience? You're like, I don't know how this is going to go. This could be good, but it might not be good. Like, cool, I got a job. That's great. Like your first real job. Remember when you got your first real job? You're like, this could be very cool. Also, I may have to go to work tomorrow again, which I don't know how I feel about, right? This could be kind of bad. My boss might be mean. My coworkers might be annoying, right? I might not be able to advance in the way in which I hope to advance. I got a job. That's kind of cool. But, oh, man, now I got to work every day of my life until I die. You're perched on the edge of something fun. This girl said yes to a date. This guy said yes to a date. I'm so excited to take them out and have this experience. But what if they turn into my spouse? I'm never going to be able to date again. Do you ever have that thought? Like you jump like seven steps down the line. All right, you're perched on the edge of something. It might be really good, but it also might be kind of difficult. Woohoo, we're pregnant. Lord have mercy, we're pregnant. <laughs> right? It's, it's kind of good. It's mostly good, but it's also, whoa. It's new life, but it also means your death. Right? Like it's, those of you who have kids know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? The life you had before kids is not the life you have after kids. You kiss that life goodbye. I'm kind of excited about it, but I'm also kind of horrified. Why? Because your life is perched on the edge. Life is always, if we're honest, perched on the edge of life sucks. Right? Can I get an amen? Right? Life is always perched on the edge of life is difficult. Life is terrible. I don't like this at all. Life is always perched on that edge. And the question becomes, how do we survive it? How do you survive living on that knife's edge? Well, I believe, and I believe our text illustrates this morning, that you survive living on that edge by encountering God enough times that you eventually get it through your thick skull to trust Him to the point that you'll act on what he says. Kind of like what happened to Abram in Genesis chapter 17. Have a look. I'm going to read you the whole thing. Um, I said in first service, and I'll say it again, I keep expecting to be able to just preach a couple verses, but in Genesis, typically you've got to do the whole chapter. So here's the whole chapter. You can follow along on screen. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. I mean, have you ever heard the word foreskin more times in three minutes. Lord have mercy. I mean, I'm glad I didn't write the Bible because if I did, I'd be embarrassed to read it. Right? It's a lot of knives and body parts. Okay, here's the big idea of this passage. Life is difficult and God is the answer. You can just take that and leave. Like, that's your truth for the day. Life is difficult and God is the answer. Let's see how we get there. Look at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said... Okay, how do we get life is difficult from this? Because he's 99 years old, and God still has to show up and tell him things. Because God still has not fulfilled to him the promise he made to him when he was 75 years old, and he moved from Haran to the land of Canaan. Okay, why is life difficult? Because he's been waiting a very long time. We read last week that they moved to Canaan when he was 75. When he was 85, that's when they took matters into their own hands. And Sarai, his wife, gave Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant, to Abram as a wife so that hopefully she could have sons or children through her. So Hagar becomes the first handmaid. She becomes a surrogate. And Ishmael becomes the firstborn son to Abram, but he's not a son of Sarai. This happened last chapter. Okay, they're 75 when they move to Canaan, 85 when the handmaid's tale takes place for the first time, and 86 when Ishmael is finally born. So we have now moved forward 13 additional years to when the man is 99 years old. He moved to the land of promise at 75. He's been waiting 24 years. Can you imagine? Have you ever had to wait that long for God to come through? Maybe. I mean, it's possible. But 24 years, that is a long time time to wait. And I love the old theologian who put it this way. He says, God typically has three answers when you ask him a question. His first answer is sometimes yes. 
Often his second answer is no. And it seems to me from my limited experience that his favorite answer is wait. Right? Can I get a witness? Right? Sometimes he says yes, once in a blue moon. Often he says no. Most of the time in my life experience he says wait. And have you ever met a human being who likes to wait? So if your life is stuck in wait and see, just suck it up and embrace it knowing that you're biblical. Right? Remember Abram and Sarai and go, well, 24 years waiting for the promise to come true. <sighs> I guess I'll keep waiting. Okay? If you're tired of waiting, don't be because you're biblical. And waiting makes life hard. Sometimes life is hard. And whenever we face the hardness of life, you know it, I know it. As human beings, we try to find an answer to alleviate our suffering. We find ourselves in difficulty and we're like, I got to fix this. I got to fix this. I got to find a solution. Okay? The solution that you need is God Himself. Life is difficult and you need God to show up. This is a very, very instructive point for me. When I face difficulty, I want to leap into action. I want to save myself. I want to make the difference for myself, for my wife, for my kids. The truth is, what I need is for God to show up because sometimes life is difficult. Look what happens in verse 1. The Lord does just that. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I love this, God shows up and he's talkative. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, God shows up talking. So a couple things from this. God shows up. I want to encourage you, okay, if you feel like your life is perched on the edge, I want to encourage you to watch for God in everything. Okay, I want you to watch for Him in your interaction with other people. Even people who don't claim to know the Lord. One of the most encouraging things for me as a follower of Jesus is when I see the hand of Jesus clearly at work in someone who doesn't even acknowledge Jesus. I love that. I don't necessarily point it out in the moment. Okay, but I file it away for future reference because guaranteed the day will come as I continue in relationship with them when that's going to come to the surface and they're going to say, you know, I've been dealing with this thing and I've been walking through it and it hasn't been easy. And then you can say, yeah, I know. I saw that like three years ago. I say, what is that? That's the hand of God in your life. Now, I don't suggest necessarily taking this tactic with a stranger. Right? That's not going to fly so much. They might slap you. Right? That's the hand of... It's so pompous and arrogant. People don't like that. But if they're your friend and you have a relationship with them, I have never had a friend to whom I said this after they asked me, you know, I'm dealing with this thing. I don't know what's going on. Do you have any opinions? Then I say, yes, it's the hand of God at work in your life. And because they're my friend, they generally don't slap me. Right? They generally go, I hadn't thought of that. So see God at work in your friends. File it away for future reference. See God at work around you because God shows up. Now, if this was one isolated incident, like this was the only time in the Bible that God ever showed up to talk to one of his people, then I'd be overemphasizing the point. But you may know the Bible. I kind of am getting to know the Bible a little bit. And I know that this is a habit of his. He has a habit of showing up and talking to his people. He has a habit of showing up and calling his people to walk with him. This is not a one-time occurrence. So you can build a faith on this. If you feel your life is perched on the edge, I want to encourage you this week to watch for him in everything. While you're watching, listen. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord God appeared to him and said, he's speaking. God talks. 
Okay, I want to just emphasize how much God likes to talk. He likes to talk so much that he named the second member of the Trinity the Logos, the Word. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, without him, nothing was made that was made. Okay, in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only begotten of the Father, the second member of the Trinity, the person we know in his incarnation as Jesus Christ has another name, and it's talkative. Logos. Okay, God loves to talk so much, he named himself the Word. So my exhortation to you, if you find yourself perched on the edge, is to take a moment to listen. To do this, you may need to eliminate noise from your life. I want to rant for a minute about how much noise there is in our life these days. I've been a preacher long enough to have preached in a culture that did not have constituents who were constantly tethered to their noisemaker. Okay, hop on the GO train. Go downtown Toronto. Walk through Union Station. Walk along King Street. You have to dodge people who are so connected to their noisemaker that they're not even looking where they're going. And nine times out of ten, not only do they have their noisemaker in their hand, they are connected (coughs) to their noisemaker with their earphones. Then you see the people who are really committed to their noise, and they have the ones that, like, noise cancel. It should cancel the noise coming from the noisemaker. Then we might be able to get somewhere. They're walking around isolated, okay, constantly feeding themselves an undying stream of noise. I don't know if I'm talking too loud. I can't even hear myself right now, right? This is our culture. Everyone connected to their noisemaker all the time. When I get on the train, I put my noisemaker away just to fight the power. And most of the time, I'm the only person on the train not tethered to his machine. I want to buy stocks right now in the companies that's going to be like inserting ocular inputs in our eyes so that we can see our noisemakers without looking at them. Because if culture is any indicator, within one generation, everybody's going to be walking around staring into the middle distance all the time, and it's not because they're in love. You feel me? Because they're connected to their noisemaker. The problem with a noisemaker is you can't hear anything except the noise that you're putting into your mind. You're like, I can't hear the Lord speak. No wonder. Untether yourself. I want to invite you, if you feel like your life is perched on the edge, to welcome some vacuum into your life. Vacuum. What's great about vacuum is that stuff rushes into it. Vacuum. Create a vacuum in your life. Create some silence in your life. Create some space in your life. Try it. I guarantee you, you will be astonished at how much noise God makes once you allow him a little silence. You know why people constantly fill their lives with noise? It's like they're inoculating themselves to the reality of life. I don't want to think about life, God, and the meaning of the universe, so I'm going to listen to music constantly and watch screens constantly, so I don't have to think about the fact that I'm alone in the universe. You haven't heard God speak in a while? Cultivate some silence and watch Him show up. What I love about God is that when He shows up and starts talking, He's usually issuing impossible commands and making grandiose promises. I love it. Look at verses 1 through 2. I'm God Almighty. 
Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is audacious. I don't know if you've got this about me so far, but whenever I see God being audacious, it makes my day. I love it. It's the best day of my life. I am God Almighty. It says in the Hebrew, I am God Almighty. Ani El Shaddai. That's who I am. I am El Shaddai. What does El Shaddai mean in the Hebrew? It means the God who is enough. Not a preach right there. I am the God who is enough, says God to Abram. I am the God who suffices. Okay? Life is difficult, but God is enough. That'll preach right there. That could be enough right there. Right? If we were trying to do church in half an hour, I could stop right there. Right? Life is difficult, but God is enough. He could drop the mic right here. He shows up and says, I am the God who is enough. Woo! And all God's people said, Yay! Yay! You're enough? That's the best news I heard all life. Amazing. I am El Shaddai. I am the God. Life is difficult, but God is enough. And then look what he says. He starts issuing commands. It's a habit of his because he's God. <laughs> I am the God who is enough. Walk before me and be blameless. Amazing. The word for walk in the Hebrew is hitchalech, and it's a command. And hitchalech is like saying, go ahead. It's like he's from Texas. Go ahead. You know, it's like he's a mama sparrow in the nest and he's kicking the baby sparrow out of the nest. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Have a coke and a smile, Mike. Go ahead. Right, go ahead. Go do it. Go. Go on now. Go ahead, kid. It's perfunctory. It's just, it's time. Go. Get up and go. Do something. I am the God who is enough. Go ahead. Walk before me and be blameless. Life is difficult, but God expects you to get going and keep going. Are you stalled? Have you stopped moving? Are you so frozen by the difficulty of your life that you haven't done anything in weeks? Okay, God says to you today, through his word to Abraham, go ahead, get up. Get up and do something. Okay, get up and do something. He expects you to get up and do something and to keep doing something. Do something. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Here's where he gets ridiculous. I love this. Be blameless. You're like, um, I don't know if you know the human race very well or not, Lord God Almighty. Not many of us are blameless. Right? Like, have you ever met a blameless person? Never. Right? Never. They don't exist. Isn't that amazing? You're like, huh. You know, I can't think of one. This is why churches should be full of imperfect people, sinful people, wrecked people, people putting their lives back together, people who think they got it figured out then realize they don't, messed up people, positive people, negative people, right? Because if we're going to make it a qualification to be sinless before you come to church, i got to leave right now. Empty the church. Everyone has to leave, right? Sinlessness, blamelessness is not a pre-qualifier. Okay? So... If you're like reading this and going, God's telling you to be blameless, that's impossible. You're reading it correctly. You're a good theologian. Okay, It's impossible to be blameless. Now, we can get some help if we dig a little deeper into what blamelessness means. This is great. In the Hebrew, you know what blameless means? Tamim. You know what tamim means? Tasty. Tasty. I am the Lord who is enough. Walk before me and be a Big Mac. Right? 
You know Big Macs are tasty. It may not be good for you, but it tastes good, right? I am the God who is enough. Walk before me and be macaroni and cheese. You're like, I don't understand at all where you get this point from. Well, of course, until we remember Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's asking you to chew on him a bit. Right? What does a baby do when they find something tasty? They will not let it go no matter what. They're like, (laughs) they'll chew on it until it's just part of them. Exactly. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blamelessness means tastiness. Be tasty like Jesus. How do I know Jesus is tasty? Well, tasty is another way of saying the best. Is it not? That's tasty. That's the best. That steak is tasty. Right? Has anyone ever said that about your shoes? Like, dude, your shoes are tasty. I've used it that way. Right? Tastiness is another term for awesomeness. It's another term for greatness. It's another term for bestness. And, of course, all those superlatives find their fullest expression in the person of God the Son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate in tastiness. How do I know? Well, because he dealt with our sin problem. That's why I know he's the greatest. You know your sin problem that you have and that everyone you know has, that thing that causes you to not do the things you want to do and do the things you don't want to do? That thing that wrecks everything you lay your hands to? That thing that causes you to work your bones to the ground and nothing really ever seems to come from it? That thing that comes between you and your friends, between you and your spouse and causes you to fight? That sin problem, that tendency towards arrogance and pride? That's inbred in you. It comes from your first parents, Adam and Eve, as a result of their sin in the Garden of Eden. When they disobeyed the Lord's God commandment to leave alone the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed Him. They ate from the tree even though He told them not to. And as a result of that disobedience, they were banished and cursed and sent from the garden. And that sin nature began to develop in them and it developed in their offspring. And we see that sad story writ throughout human history. That no matter how hard we try, we always screw everything up and we give way to genocide and we give way to oppression. Right? And the rich oppress the poor. And men oppress women. And races oppress others. And nations wipe out other nations. And human history becomes this litany of woe. As God's people, made originally in His image and likeness to be His friends forever, run further and further and further away from their God. Run further and further away from their very reason for being. But God did not leave us that way. He didn't leave us to our own devices. In the fullness of time, according to the Scripture, He sent His Son. God the Son became a man. And Jesus Christ entered into space-time history and changed it forever. As on the cross, as He hung there, that first Good Friday between two thieves, God the Father placed on Him the iniquities of us all. Your sin and mine was laid on Jesus. God the Son made flesh. He's big enough to take it all. Imagine that. The sins of the world throughout all time laid on God the Son. I'll never forget years ago watching a documentary on Auschwitz. It was a multi-part documentary. I watched it one year while I was doing my taxes. You're like, you are a very sick individual. And it was so horrific, it sent me into weeks of contemplative sadness. And as I would preach the gospel on a Sunday, having watched another episode in the week leading up to that Sunday, I was struck 
by the fact that the sins of the world includes the sins of the Nazi regime and the sins of those men who worked those gas chambers and the sins of those men who worked those tractors that piled those bodies into those pits. When you think about that, you think about the sins of Auschwitz. Just to take one example... And you think that those sins were laid on God the Son in that moment. It's no wonder that God the Father found him disgusting and turned his back on him. To the point that God the Son cried out to God the Father, with whom he had been one from all eternity, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Bible doesn't say this, but in light of what we know from history, we can safely say that God the Father, if he had spoken in that moment, would have had to speak for a very long time as he laid on the Son all the sins of all the world throughout all time. For Auschwitz, son, that's why I'm turning my back on you. And not just for Auschwitz, but for your sin and my sin, for our culpability in the darkness and the evil that has shaped our world. And Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, suffered and died in our place for our sin. It's the most cataclysmic, important event in the history of the universe. And what's absolutely remarkable about it is that after he dies, he does not stay dead, but he rises again the third day, that first Easter Sunday morning, defeating in his body the power of Satan's sin, death and hell forever. He rises victorious, and he stays victorious. He visits with his friends for 40 days or so. He eats meals, which means he's corporeal. He still has holes in his body, which means it really happened to him. In one account, it looks like he walks through a wall, which you're like, wow, that's crazy. And then he ascends right in front of their eyes to the Father's right hand, and he sits down because his job is done. And he stays seated there at the Father's right hand, interceding for you. He's your cheering section. He's your advocate. He only gets up to work on your house because the scriptures tell us that he went to prepare a place for you. So once in a while, he gets up to work on your house. We've got to lay the floors today. So we're going to lay the floors. I'm going to check in on that. And then I'm going to come back and sit down and keep advocating. You're like, how can he handle that? How can he be like a tile guy and also advocate for his people? I'm like, because he's God. Don't try this at home. Okay? That place where he's seated at the Father's right hand when he's not building is the place from which he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end. A kingdom in which you have a place and a home and a job to do that's going to take you all of eternity to do. And Jesus is the one who made that happen for you, which is why I call him macaroni and cheese. He's tasty. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't you feel his goodness reflecting on that? Was it just me? Help me out. You feel that a little bit? Like he's a Big Mac. I get that now. I'm going to go home and eat a Big Mac this afternoon. Tasty Jesus. Right? Life is difficult, so get a little Jesus in your belly. I was going to go crazy and like write Jesus on my belly in black marker, but I thought, you know, it's not springtime yet, so give me a minute, you know. Get a little Jesus in your belly. He's the ultimate comfort food. Man, you sit here today, you're feeling like, I feel that. I feel that. How do I respond to that? You ever feel like that? You listen to a preacher? You're like, let's go. I don't know, maybe it's just me. I'm like, I want to start running laps. I want to, I want to go to work. You know, I go home, I'm like, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. I'm, I'm stoked, right? I'm going to go do it. So what do I do? You learn to worship. That's what you do. That's your response. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face. <laughs> That's worship, right? In the Greek, worship is proskuneo. It means to fall down, come close, and kiss. 
Okay, that's worship. To fall down, come close, and kiss. So when Abram is falling on his face here, he is worshiping the God who is enough. Okay, your response to tasty Jesus should be worship. This is why I'm always exhorting you to get better at worshiping, to dig deeper in worship, to sing if you've never sung before, to sing better if you've just started singing, to never stop until you get to the point where you just basically explode and then awaken in his likeness, and now you really have your pipe organ lungs and can tear it up as you stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb together with his saints to worship him forever. You know? You're made to worship the God of heaven who made you to be his friend. The proper response to the tastiness of the gospel is to worship the God of the gospel. And notice what happens while he's worshiping. Don't miss this connection. While he's worshiping, he's still on his face before the Lord. This is when the Lord begins speaking to him. He begins issuing him commands and giving him promises. We read these in verses 4 through 16. I'll just hit it real quick here, starting with verse 4. Behold, says the Lord, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I'll establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. The meek shall inherit the earth, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is it. Okay, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And I read you all the details enough times. I just don't want to have to say foreskin again. Oops, I just did it. Okay, I'm going to hit this real quick as we finish up here. Don't miss this, okay? The point here is not to recite to you a bunch of promises and commands that God gave to Abraham. Wouldn't that be stupid? Because who cares? Okay? In Jesus, you have been grafted into the family of Abraham. And therefore, the promises and commands that God issues to Abraham and to Sarah, he issues to you as part of their family because you have been adopted into that family in Jesus Christ. And so as we recite the promises and commands of God from from God to Abraham and Sarai, you should be listening today to see which one of those promises and commands resonate specifically for you. Not every single one of them will, but guaranteed some of them will. So that's your job in the next 10 minutes. You shall be, verse 4, the father of a multitude of nations. This is a powerful reminder that God deals with us from the context of his omniscience. You shall be. Okay? Omniscience, meaning God knows everything. Okay? God deals with his people from the context of his omniscience. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He's speaking here with certainty about something that has not happened yet. Okay? You need to remember this as you deal with a life that feels like it's perched on the edge. You need to remember that God deals with you from the context of his omniscience. You need to remember that God deals with you from outside the limits of space and time. Okay? For us, everything in space and time is linear. Everything moves from A to B to C to D. Right? Unless we take a left, and now it's C with like an apostrophe. Then it moves to C, apostrophe D, apostrophe, and it becomes linear again. Right? Time is linear as we experience it. Okay? I know that scientifically speaking, we're beginning to realize that time is more than just linear, which is exactly biblical. 
right? God himself dwells outside of time. He himself is the end and the beginning, the alpha and the omega. He sees everything as it is. He deals with and lives from the eternal now. Everything is eternally present to him. God deals with us from the context of his omniscience, from outside of the limits of space and time. This is why we need to keep in mind that God's promises to us are both honestly now and truly not yet. How are they now? Okay? God's promises are now from his point of view. Okay? Let's imagine his point of view. He exists outside space-time. He can see all of it in its entirety at the same time and at once. So from that context, imagine this stage is space-time. God stands outside of space-time, and he can see all of it at the same time. All of it at once. And so for him, the end truly is not distinct from the beginning. And from his perspective, everything truly is finished. Everything truly is done. From God's perspective, his promises to us truly are now. But from our perspective, living in the context of space-time, those things have not happened yet. So though from God's perspective they are now, from our perspective they are not yet. So here's how you live in that tension. As a follower of Jesus, you keep walking into the future that God has accomplished for you. Do you see? You keep walking into the future that God has accomplished for you. From good theology, we get good methodology. We learn how to live as we examine how God lives. Okay? We look at how God lives, and because of how we believe God lives, we are confident. Why? Because from God's perspective, it is finished. Our future is accomplished, and so we're confident. So Christian confidence comes from knowing that from God's perspective, everything is done. That's where you get your confidence from. Not from another book, not from another seminar, not from achieving good things, but from good theology, from knowing that from God's perspective, everything is now, everything is done, everything is finished. It's all good. Okay, this is the root of Christian confidence. So where do we get Christian activity from? Maybe you've heard a a Christian, part of the frozen chosen, say, well, it's all finished anyway. Why do we have to do anything? Because he's there, but we're not yet. Right? He's there in the eternal now. We're still here in 2018. So we keep moving forward because we're not there yet, even though he is. From this, we get Christian activity. We're not trying to achieve something that we can, I'm going to finish it. No, God has finished it. So why do I have to do anything? Because he's finished it in the eternal now, which from your perspective is in the future. So why don't you go ahead and start walking there? Good, right? He's there. You're not. So keep moving. This is why God can say something audacious, like he says in verse 5. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Your future is so set, God's even got a new name for you. That's beautiful. Abraham's future is so set that God changes his name in the present to align with what God knows his future is celebrate, right? You have a new name too. You're like, great, what's my new name? Your name is his. Like, okay, a little more gender specific than I was hoping for. All right, your name is his. Well, I don't understand. Well, you belong to Jesus now, so you're his. Your name is Christ's. Your name is Christian, little Christ. Your name is in Christ. Put simply, your name is his. You belong to Jesus now, 
That's your new identity. Friends, that's how you shift your identity. From accepting, receiving, appropriating what is for you in Christ. You don't need another book. You don't need another seminar. You don't need to work harder. You need to accept the fact that God has set your future, that it is accomplished from his perspective, and that you're just on your way there. In fact, your future is so set that he's got a new name for you, just like he had a new name for your father Abraham and your mother Sarah. I mean, somebody say hallelujah, right? You're a made woman now. You're a made man now. you got no worries now because all this hinges on God's activity and not on yours. Let's look at verses 6 through 7. This is amazing. Look what he says. For I hear all the imperative action that God is undertaking. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. Come on now. Is that the best thing you've heard all week? I will make. I will make. I will establish. I will be. Okay? He will make you fruitful. He will do something amazing with your life. Don't you want God to say to you, I will make you into nations? This is your forefather, Abraham. This is your foremother, Sarah. Okay? In them, that promise from God is for you because Jesus has adopted you into his once and forever family. He's going to do something amazing with your life. He's going to make you into nations. It's incredible. He will establish an everlasting promise with you that you can count on. All you got to do is cut your foreskin off. You're like, perfect. It's exactly what I had in mind. (laughs) This is what he says in verses 9 through 14. I won't read it again because we already read it once and I'm out of time. It says, circumcise yourself in the flesh of your foreskin, you and every male in your household. Whether he's born in your family or whether you've bought him, meaning he's one of your slaves, or whether he's been born to one of your slave families, every single one of them, chop him up. Okay, that is the sign of the covenant. Question, why circumcision? Okay, why? Well, in verse 11, we see that it's a sign of the covenant. It's not the covenant itself. It's a sign of the covenant. Okay, and this sign is irreversibly cut into Abraham's flesh in verse 13. It's a sign irreversibly cut into his flesh that he belongs everlastingly to the God who suffices. Okay, circumcision was irreversible, undeniable evidence that Abraham and his family forever belonged everlastingly to the God who was enough. Okay, this irreversible, undeniable evidence in the New Testament moves from the foreskin to the heart. Okay, let me read you very quickly a passage out of Romans chapter 2, very famously dealing with circumcision. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the 
name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And that passage was written from a Jew to Jews living in Rome. Circumcision in the New Testament moves from the foreskin to the heart, and everybody said amen. Everyone said, thank you, Jesus. Celebrate, right? But the question remains very difficult. In light of the fact that circumcision now moves from an external physical sign to a sign that resides in the heart, we need to ask ourselves the following question. Are we living in such a way that we might as well be wandering around naked for everyone to look at us and go, oh, they belong to El Shaddai. Because that's what circumcision was and that's what circumcision is. It's just moved from the foreskin to the heart. But the purpose is still the same. For everyone to look on your life and go, they belong to someone else, clearly. So, are you displaying that kind of evidence as you follow Jesus here in the city of Guelph? Have you ceased from striving? Would your friends look at you and go, you know, they work hard, but they always seem kind of relaxed about it. You know, I, I wonder why that is. Have you learned contentment and gratitude? Would your friends who don't know Jesus say of you, you know, bad things happen to them, but it doesn't seem to ever crush their soul. They're still happy in the midst of sadness, and they still seem okay, even though their life is falling apart all around them. I wonder why that is. You know why? Because they're circumcised. Because they belong to the God who is enough. You're like, pfft. <laughs> that's impossible. Okay, if you feel hearing this, that it's impossible, once again, your doubt is biblical. Let's finish. Look at verses 17 through 18. Look what Abraham says and does. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I love that Abraham kind of receives God's teaching, but only kind of. He has changed his name. He uses his new name and Sarah's new name, so he's kind of receiving what God has said, but then he's laughing at the other part that seems impossible. He's like, ha, 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 as if. That's impossible. Lord, can't we just stick to plan B? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Can't you just work with him? Nope, says God. Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall call his name laughter, like you just laughed at me. Isaac, Yitzchak, laughter. Okay? I laughed at you. Tzachakti. I laughed. I laughed at you. Tzachakti alechem. Because you don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> you make me laugh. Yitzchak, Isaac. Don't you love the Lord? He's kind to his friend, but he's slapping him a little bit. You, you dummy. Call him Laughter. Because I saw you laughing at me. Okay, look, I'm going to be kind to Ishmael because you're my friend. I've heard you, he says about Ishmael. 
I'll bless him. Twelve princes will come from his line. Fine. Because you're my friend, I'll bless your first son. But my covenant goes to Isaac. When he speaks of his covenant, he says he will raise it up. I will stand it up. Literally, hiramti. I will, I will stand it up. I will lift it up. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. Finally, a timeline I can work with. Right? Expect as you walk with God for a long time that he'll get more and more specific with you. Right? You follow him a long time, you're like, I feel like God's getting more specific with me. I feel like I'm hearing him more clearly. I feel like he's giving me specific instructions and timeline. That's biblical. Because 24 years later, he gets specific with Abraham. He says, this time next year, Isaac is going to be born. And with him, I will establish my covenant. So go ahead and do what I told you to do. And then poof, he ascends from before Abraham. I love it. I love it. Anytime I see an ascension, I think of the ascension. When Jesus Christ ascended from before the face of his disciples. And I love the fact that God leaves Abraham with a command. And then he ascends. Just like Jesus left his disciples with a command. And then he ascended. Okay, we'll get to what he commanded Abraham to do in just a second. What did Jesus command his disciples to do? He said, go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And then, poof, up he goes to the Father's right hand. He leaves us with a job to do. And he says, go ahead and do the job I gave you to do. That's why we're building a church here. A church in in which, Lord willing, more and more people will learn to follow Jesus. To love, serve, follow, obey, and enjoy Him all the days of their life. Why? Because that's the mission of Christ. That's what He told us to do. With no cap. He didn't say, go and do it until you reach 800. It's like, no, just go and do it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it until He returns. There's our church growth strategy right there. We're going to go and do what He told us to do. And so, Abraham goes and does what God told him to do. Worship team, you can join me because I'm done. Let me close with verses 23 through 27. This is awesome. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, they're like repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. Those born in his house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. It's a classic literary device in the Hebrew Old Testament that they kind of say the same thing three different ways. And we're like, I got it. I get it. This 99-year-old dude called the men of his household together, probably hundreds of them, and said, fellas, I got a plan. And they're all like, cool, good. What's the plan? I should have brought a knife as a sermon illustration today. That would have been good. Flicks out the knife. Let's party. And I'm like, did he do himself first or last? Probably last, because he's got to circumcise his entire household. But then did he do himself? Because he doesn't want to give the knife to all those who've just been under the knife. You're like, this is crazy. It is crazy. You know what that is? That's belief, my friends. That's conviction right there. That's biblical action right there, friends. That's how you get your life off the edge. You meet God. You listen to them, and then you take action before the payoff. Hear me. You take action before the payoff. You act like God is enough, because He is. So go ahead and do it. This week, act like God is enough. Go ahead and do it, in fact, this very day.